Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So the United States is ending the forever wars. Well, not exactly. It looks like we are taking some troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq, but there's a long way to go to get to zero. And this is all happening while President Donald Trump, even as he claims he hasn't won the election, he lost it. And so he could do a lot of interesting things between now and January 20th in foreign policy. That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Alex Ward, and here, as always, with Jen Kirby. Hi, Jen. Hey, Alex. How are you? Oh, doing just dandy. It's International Men's Day. Did you know that? <laughs> I, I did not. I will. I, my hat's off to you, Alex. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I'll, I'll wait for my gift for later in the day. Uh, and Jen Williams is not here with us. She is out, but uh, we will soldier on without her, pun somewhat intended. <laughs> so it's been quite a couple of days. Uh, I, I've been surprised by the couple of days we've seen. We've seen quite a bit of change at the Pentagon. We've seen some... Uh, pretty dramatic announcements out of nowhere. It looks like all of a sudden the Trump administration, with the little time it has left, has gone into turbo mode on changing a lot of the ways of war and peace in the United States. And so uh, why don't we just start with you, Jen, explaining what the big announcement was this week by uh, our new acting Secretary of Defense? So yeah, so our new acting Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, uh, who replaced Mark Esper, the former Pentagon chief, uh, on November 9th, um, announced that the United States would be withdrawing troops from both Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq, uh, we're going to draw down about 500 troops from, we were at a little over 3,000, now it'll be about 2,500. And in Afghanistan, it's going to be about uh, 2,500 troops down from about 4,500. Obviously, we've been fighting in these places for uh you know, Afghanistan for almost two decades. And, you know, President Trump had come into office uh, promising to end uh, these forever wars. And he's been itching particularly to get out of Afghanistan. And it seems that this is sort of a last, um, you know, ditch attempt to kind of partially fulfill that promise. Obviously, we will still have troop presences in both of those places, at least based on the timeline we've seen right now, those drawdowns will happen about January 15th, which is about five days until a new president takes office and we'll have to deal with whatever the consequences are of this uh, decision. Yeah, this is fascinating to me. So a, a bit of backstory for folks who may not be following the, our wars that we are still in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So 2001 is when the war in Afghanistan started. We invaded uh, after the 9-11 attacks, which were perpetrated by al-Qaeda, a terrorist group, which the Taliban, another ins an, an insurgent group living in, in Afghanistan, harbored al-Qaeda and helped them out. Um, and so we went in to basically root out al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And then the war in Afghanistan since 2003 uh, with the invasion based on the faulty uh, 
path to war that they that Saddam Hussein was harboring weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the Afghanistan wars continued unimpeded, frankly, since 2001. 2003, there's been a stop in a sense. The U.S. pulled out all troops, or roughly all troops in 2011 and in the Obama administration. Then a little terrorist group known as ISIS uh, grew out of that vacuum. And so we sent troops back in to defeat it. And we've kind of been there since mostly to train and advise the Iraqi forces to fight off terrorist groups like ISIS and also protected against Iranian proxies um, that are roaming about in that country. And in Afghanistan, we have two different missions. One is, it's called Train, Advise, and Assist, in which the U.S. military helps Afghan military and police forces to combat the Taliban and and, and other groups. And then also our own counterterrorism mission, which is, again, the United States military basically on its own, fighting terrorists and making sure that they can't attack the United States anymore. So with that very broad overview, what this seems like it's going to do um, are two things. In Iraq, probably not that much change because, you know, about 2,500 troops when you're training and advising mostly, um, I mean, it will do, it'll make it harder to do the job, but not that much harder is what experts tell me. So, you know, don't expect too much change there. So it's Afghanistan where the change is mostly going to happen, it seems, because at 2,500 troops, that's roughly the floor, let's say, um, of the counterterrorism mission. Like if you're trying to stop terrorist groups from attacking and defeating you or or planning attacks, you're going to, most planners would say 2,500 troops in Afghanistan is is like the minimum amount you could have. You could disagree with that number, but that's what I've been hearing, which would then mean a pretty radical de-escalation of our trained advise and assist mission. So in effect, what this seems like it will do in Afghanistan is mostly, not completely, but mostly have the U.S. basically tell the Afghan forces, you're on your own. Uh, and that seems a little bit troubling based on the current political situation there. And I'm interested, Alex, because you've been following this a little bit more closely than me. We have a uh, peace deal uh, that the U.S. has signed with the Taliban. And I'm curious how you think this drawdown of the troops will affect that, because it's my understanding that we were on a plan to begin to uh, pull back on our force presence there in the spring of 2021. So this is a little bit more of a rush timeline. And I'm curious in how the people that you've spoken to, what you've been hearing about the effect on that. This U.S.-Taliban peace deal signed earlier this year, February. Again, time means nothing to me anymore, but I'm pretty sure it was February. Um, The main thing out of that deal was that the U.S. would withdraw all troops by May 2021 if the conditions in Afghanistan were okay for us to leave. And, And those two conditions roughly were that the Taliban in Afghanistan, which had resisted talking to each other for years, had come to some sort of negotiation as to what would happen after the U.S. left. And also, most importantly, there would be not that much violence in the country anymore. Um, and that the Taliban would start to stop attacking. Well, those two conditions are not met yet. Again, you could talk to some people who would say, look, it makes sense to withdraw some troops now because we're still expecting to get out in May. And even if we don't, we can ramp up again. That's one way to look at it. Um, another way to look at it is that and this is what the critics would say, is that the U.S. withdrawing troops at the moment gives, especially the Afghan government, less leverage in its talks with the Taliban. If you're the Taliban, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, um, America's leaving anyway? So, like, why would we stop attacking? Why would we concede a lot of things to Afghanistan in these negotiations? Um, And so you might want the war to end. I think it's a completely fair thing to want after 19 years. Uh, But if you are looking for the best possible deal, let's say, for the Afghan government that we've been backing for a really long time, then maybe withdrawing, you know, or cutting the troop total in Afghanistan roughly in half might not be the best way to do that. 
Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like to me as well. And that, you know, and I think there's reasons to be critical of all elements of this, but certainly I believe, you know, last month was one of the most violent in Afghanistan in, in many, many months. And the Taliban has, it appears to be stepping up their attacks. So the U.S. kind of signaling very clearly that they're, they want to get out and they don't really seem all that concerned about the conditions on the ground or the conditions that need to be met in order to be leaving. Um, it certainly signals that the Taliban, or I think it feels like a signal to the Taliban that they kind of have free reign and they don't necessarily need to uphold up their end of the bargain. And that puts the Afghan government, I think, in a pretty tough situation. Yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly. I actually talked to um, a senior Afghanistan official who, um, you know, as this the news broke of the planned withdrawal before it was officially announced, and we'll get to um, who Christopher Miller, the new our new Pentagon chief, is uh, re- shortly. But what I had heard, you know, when the news broke, I was like, "Hey, have you has this been communicated to you guys? You know, are you were you okay with it? Whatever." And they said, "We really have nothing to say. No one has talked to us about it. Nothing official has come in. So, like." You know, not much to say at the moment. I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the the Pentagon, the U.S. government is planning a withdrawal and they haven't even talked to Afghanistan about it. Uh, and then apparently Miller called um, Afghan President uh, Ashraf Ghani very shortly before announcing it formally to the Pentagon press corps and saying like, hey, we're doing this. And then the Afghan government, uh, according to my source, was like, there was no reason to push back on him in the call because like the decision had just been made. And so like, what was the point of fighting? which shows how unilateral this was. It shows that, uh, you know, usually when you do a thing like this, you want to coordinate with the country that you're in, Afghanistan, and including NATO allies that have been with us in this war for a really, really long time. Um, But it was NATO, uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who was like, this seems uh, premature and, you know, not in coordination with us. And like, we're still going to be there, even if you guys leave. Um, And then you had, you know, even Republicans be like, this seems a bit hasty. Uh, again, I'm, this this sort of thing is always intention for me um, because I feel I feel like there's nothing hasty about withdrawing from a war that's 19 years long. Um, but at the same time, if you're going to do something like this, you need to do it responsibly. And this just seems like a really irresponsible withdrawal, at least the way this has been handled so far. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Is it's not that uh, necessarily that anyone is advocating that these troops kind of continue their mission, but the drawdown has to be done in a way that, you know, the consequences are going to be communicated to all of our partners who are also um, in the region. You mentioned NATO, which is obviously a big one there, but also um, the governments in these respective places, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq. And, um, you know, because ultimately, whatever you may think about the U.S. presence there, the consequences or decision are going to be felt on the ground, um, often by the civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan who've been dealing with the consequences of this for years. So, the hasty withdrawal seems to me to be another kind of, you know, degree of, I want to say maybe irresponsibility, but I think you got back to the, you mentioned sort of Christopher Miller, the decision had already been made. And obviously there has been a shakeup at the top of the leadership in the Pentagon. And we know Trump has wanted this for a while. And this very much seems to be the culmination of, uh, you know, a very Trumpian decision that finally the people are in place who are not going to give Trump pushback, who are going to move forward on whatever he wants and, uh, you know, input and uh, coordination with other parties be damned. Yeah, I I quickly want to underscore the point that you made that like this is a any American withdrawal that's done hastily or irresponsibly will only make the civilian problems in, in Iraq and Afghanistan worse. I mean, like, there's no question when the U.S. troops leave 
things will be bad there uh, no matter what. And like, it will hurt, it will suck for hundreds of people, particularly women in Afghanistan. Um, but that, you know, then you have to weigh that versus how long should U.S. troops be there. Um, and that's always a hard thing. But I, I don't want this to sound like a bloodless thing, like we leave and then it's like, oh, it's just about allies and responsibility. It's really about this will affect people um, quite severely. And 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 so that's why you need to make this sort of withdrawal with, with the clearest considerations um, one could make. On Miller, I, um, which I'm glad we're going to him, um, he was the former counterterrorism director in the White House National Security Council pretty dramatic rise for him. Uh, you know, w- was doing special operations for a while, special forces type stuff, and uh, comes into government, you know, relatively good staffer from what I hear, a, you know, prominent staffer in counterterrorism, but like you normally to be depending on chief have to like work your way up the rungs and be in the party for a long time. And like now he's the fifth secretary of defense in the, in the Trump administration and like kind of out of nowhere. And uh, it looks like he's there to do a job. It looks like he's there based on two memos he has sent to Pentagon staff that he is there to end the war pretty clearly, uh, or at least draw it down as much as he possibly can, and to install perhaps a lot of uh, Trump administration foreign policies that that would make it hard for Biden to reverse when he comes in in January. Uh, the troop drawdown will be part of it. We'll get into other aspects in a moment, but that seems like where this is going. Um, and what interests me is that there have been reports, and, and, and my own reporting somewhat bears it out. I have not nailed it down, but I'll go with what others have said mostly, which is that Miller et al., and we'll get to the et al. in a bit, um, they were there, again, to draw down the war almost completely to zero troops um, in Afghanistan and, and somewhat in Iraq, but mostly Afghanistan, uh, by mid-December, because Trump had promised like all troops home by Christmas. Um, but 2,500 troops is what they decided on, and it looks like Trump was um, convinced that he needed 2,500 troops by um, certain staff, which would likely be National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien and perhaps even Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And my theory at the moment is Trump has been open to a counterterrorism force before. He told Tucker Carlson that, you know, I will never leave completely. I'm going to always keep a little bit of a, of a counterterrorism and intelligence force because we need to keep tabs on these terrorists. We can't just leave completely. Um, and so I wonder if that was the argument that made it. I, I don't know if that would make any sense to you. I think so. I mean, you know, I don't, I mean, Trump's rhetoric has very much been sort of focused on in terms of our, our fights overseas on sort of where we can win and, and how we can win. And a lot of that has been in defeating terrorists. You see that very frequently in his rhetoric around um, ISIS in Syria, right? As soon as ISIS was defeated, you know, Trump wanted to get out and he certainly tried to do that as much as possible. Our, our force presence there is very much reduced um, from where it was when he took office. So I think that does make sense. And I think, you know, I think this is sort of, uh, you know, as much as Trump loves to um, use actings and kind of bypass the Senate confirmation process to be able to um, push forward his agenda when, you know, his advisors are pushing back or not sort of delivering on the things that he he wants, I think that, you know, there is still um, a culture at the Department of Defense that is very much going to advocate for at least some additional troops, if it, even if it's just for counterterrorism. And I'm sure that still kind of trickled its way up somehow, despite sort of the change in leadership at the top. Yeah, I mean, I think we should be clear that what seems like one of the reasons Trump fired Esper 10 days ago uh, from this taping is because he wanted more troops in Afghanistan, or rather 
he didn't want to follow through on Trump's, it wasn't even an order, Trump's whim to uh, go down to zero troops uh, by by Christmas. Um, and so you expected this new team to kind of follow through. The fact that they didn't, um, it, I find fascinating. And I think you're totally right. I mean, there's been this long fight, really, even in public, about what to do about Trump's sort of desire um, and his his years-long goal of saying, I'm going to end the wars. I mean, it's something he's been promising for a really long time. And should be clear, he will not follow through on that promise. Like, come unless something drastically changes, we will still be in Afghanistan and in Iraq uh, by the end of the Trump administration. So it it is fascinating to me that you're right. There is this pretty entrenched group of folks, a lot of them concentrated in the Pentagon, who are like, look, XYZ risks will exist um, if we go down to zero, and that will be maybe terrorists will have an easier time to plan terrorist attacks. They will do a lot of harm to civilians. They could, the Taliban could, could take over the Afghan government again, like it did um, in the 90s. So, like, and it's true, those risks do exist. But the question you have to ask if you're the president um, or anyone else in charge of these decisions is, well, do I, does that mean I should keep the troops there indefinitely or for an extra period of time? It seems like Trump had clearly made up his mind. I don't want them there anymore. But he lost to a um, bureaucratic fight. And look, other presidents have lost that too. Um, President Obama, for example, argues, and you can agree or not, that he was boxed in by the Pentagon who had like leaked a planned report saying if we go a certain below a certain number, things are going to go to hell. Um, and so he was like, well, now I kind of have to do that. The Pentagon is a bureaucracy and they fight too. But I guess I'm somewhat surprised that Trump lost. Um, one, because of how vocal he's been by his conviction, um, the changes he's made at the Pentagon, and also early in his administration, they, like H.R. McMaster, the former national security advisor, said, hey, we want you to send a bunch more troops to Afghanistan. And he fought them for months being like, no, this makes no sense. You haven't convinced me. So it's a, I'm surprised that he was convinced now. Yeah, although in, in some degree, you know, I imagine the pushback from the Pentagon might have even been more pronounced in in this case because Trump is not going to be around very much longer, which means um, both the, you know, remaining uh, folks there and also the incoming administration is going to have to deal with any of the blowback. And Trump can say, and he will say, whether, you know, it's true or not that he got us all out of these wars and really his reality is all that matters. So if he can sort of project a public face of, you know, I did what I said I was going to do, and then also potentially leave a mess for his successor. That's a win-win for him. Um, and I think that's really probably his biggest <laughs> calculation right now. So you think this is kind of a middle finger to Biden, basically? I don't know if it's necessarily like explicitly that, but I think it's quite clearly... Um, the way that it's being done is uh, certainly very troubling. I mean, as we said, the projected date for this is January 15th, which is five days until Biden takes office. So he will be the you know recipient of whatever happens. And as you've written very extensively before, this is about in line, uh, sort of a presence of a counterterrorism force is what Biden has advocated for in the past and very likely where he would take his foreign policy. But we also know Biden is very much more focused on that coordination with allies and our partners on the ground. So this is not necessarily the way he would go about doing it. And that being said, Trump is making this potentially pretty consequential decision, I would say more so in Afghanistan than Iraq, but certainly one that's going to have consequences in changing the mission. And as we've talked last week, the transition has not started yet. So there is absolutely no coordination 
no um, cooperation with Biden's transition team and his national security team and his potential defense team that's going to be inheriting these decisions. So the fact that that's not happening almost makes this more likely to fail and more likely that it will actually, I don't know, potentially be a middle finger to Trump's successor, shall we say. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, boy. I, I guess I will try to make it a bit more positive for the Biden team only because I, as, as you noted, uh, you know, Biden does want, has, you might remember that during the campaign when he, they were getting asked, the candidates, Democratic candidates were being asked constantly, like, when would you end the war in Afghanistan? And you had people like Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg be like, the end of my first year, um, all troops would be gone in Afghanistan. And Biden was basically was saying, look, the end of my first term, but also I want that counterterrorism force. And in my mind, this is kind of a gift to Biden, even though Trump might not mean it as much. Because if I were Biden, I probably would have dropped to around 2,500 to have a counterterrorism force. Um, and now he doesn't have to deal with the politics of that. He just gets to inherit it. And he can complain, oh, this is what I have. I can only do the best I can with it. But like, that's probably where he would have gone, roughly. So I almost wonder if, like, you know, if I'm if I'm the Biden team, I'm like, oh, man, this really worked out for us. Interesting. I, I don't disagree with that, like, larger premise. I think it's more, I don't think it's necessarily the the end. It's sort of the means of getting there, which is, doing it pretty precipitously, not necessarily coordinating with the partners on the ground. And again, not coordinating with the team that's going to inherit that counterterrorism force. That, to me, is really the bottom line. You know, I was talking to some Biden transition officials and they mentioned, you know, in the transition from Obama to Trump, you know, there was missions in Syria to retake, uh, you know, territory from ISIS, most notably like the Battle of Raqqa, which started under the Obama administration and finished up under Trump. And there was a real emphasis on kind of keeping the Trump team abreast of everything going on, knowing that that would continue and not wanting to undermine the mission on the ground. And this situation is not quite the same, um, although, you know, I suppose Biden will be inheriting the peace deal with the Taliban and all of the terms that that applies. But the idea is it's one, there's one president of the time, Trump absolutely has the authority to make this decision. But knowing that the consequences are going to be persisting much longer than the term, it's really incumbent on the president for, you know, the security of America, for the safety of the troops on the ground. And again, for the people who live in those countries in which we've been a presence for two decades to make sure that this that Biden is kept um, in the loop about what's going on. And that's just not happening right now. And in fact, there may be other things happening that Biden is not aware of that we may be seeing down the line, uh, which the Pentagon shakeup could uh, mean and also some other things I know Trump is thinking about. Um, so let's get to that part after the break. Welcome back, worldly listeners. Okay, so the first half, we were talking about what this withdrawal that that Trump and his Pentagon uh, concocted out of nowhere, it seemed, getting down to 2,500 troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. But it doesn't look like that would be the only foreign policy decision that could happen in this transition. Um, and so I want to start understanding this new Pentagon team that Trump put in because it could signal what we might be seeing over the next 60-ish or so days. Again, time is, is, is meaningless now. So very briefly, let, let's go through who the new folks are. So we talked about uh, Chris Miller, um, the acting defense secretary. There is a new chief of staff, Cash Patel. He is also a former counterterrorism guy in the White House, but very close to, and a former aide to, Congressman Devin Nunes and Cash wrote one of the reports about why it was very clear that the Obama administration had spied on Trump's campaign and someone else named Ezra Cohen-Watnick, uh, who people tell me is a 
um, and I've written about it, so I can say it, a very shady and untrustworthy character um, who also believes that the Trump, that Obama spied on Trump and has been trying to politicize intelligence and is is a very big Trump loyalist. And all these guys, less so Miller. Miller is, is seen to be politically in line with Trump, but less of a loyalist, let's say. Whereas the Patels and the Watniks, Cohen Watniks of the world, um, are very much like what Trump wants, Trump gets. And Watnick is now the acting defense secretary for intelligence, um, under secretary for intelligence. But anyway, the, the Pentagon's chief for intelligence. And these three, in effect, it, the, the fear is that they are working to basically make anything that Trump wants on foreign policy happen over the, over the next two months. Um, and so the Afghanistan and Iraq withdrawals, and it seems like, you know, a couple hundred troops that, or 700 troops out of Somalia as well, perhaps. That's not confirmed, but that's been reported. Um, that all of that they're working to make this happen. And another sign that this may be true is that Miller, shockingly, out of nowhere, uh, to the point that the Pentagon alerted the Pentagon press corps, of which I am technically a part of, or nominally a part of, like that he was speaking and giving an announcement minutes after his announcement started. <laughs> so this was like, this is how Slapdash it was. And uh, so we all tuned in very quickly. And it turns out he was announcing that Special operations and the uh, basically the Ezra Cohen Watnick post at this moment reports directly to him, uh, and what that would do is basically make special operations similar in terms of reporting as like all the other services, so Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, etc. Like those service secretaries report directly to the Secretary of Defense, so special operations will do the same. To be fair, this has been something that had been debated quite a long time in defense circles. Like this, just this is a long overdue move. But in the context in which we're in, in which now Cohen Watnick will, re will respond directly to Miller, in which you have Cash Patel as the, the chief of staff, in which you now see this withdrawal, in which you clearly have Trump wanting to solidify a lot of his foreign policy gains before he leaves office, it rings a little odd here. Um, and it's leading some people to worry that perhaps we'll, we'll see some extra action on Iran or perhaps China. Um, over the next two months. And I wonder if you have the same concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of seems to be where this is going. And it's interesting that it is taking place at the Pentagon. I know that there have been some alarmists who see this as sort of the, the signal of the coup and very intelligent people whom I trust have basically said that is, you know, very, 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 very unlikely to ha be happening. So for those who are nervous about that, we can maybe put a put a put an end to those uh, theories. But it does really seem like Trump is sort of using this as a way to kind of make his last stand and mark. And I do think, you know, that may come back to sort of putting Biden in a tough position. We know, particularly in Iran, he sort of signaled an openness to get back into the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA. And of course, we know we expect Biden to be tougher on China than previous administrations. But of course, Biden's approach has been still much more we need to work with China where we can and, and pressure them where we can. And so taking sort of tougher moves certainly puts Biden in a tougher position as well. Um, but it also gives Trump the opportunity to go out with a bang and say he did this and he did that. And ultimately, it's quite clear Trump doesn't really care about the consequences of that. So um, this certainly seems like moving some last minute chess pieces to fill uh, parts of his agenda. And I guess the question is, will it be just Trump who gets to fulfill his agenda or will this be a free for all for everyone in his administration, particularly um, like Iran hawks like Pompeo and stuff like, will everyone get in on the party, so to speak? <laughs> it's a great question because if there's one thing we, if there's a truism of the Trump years, it's basically everyone can pursue their own pet projects until they sort of run into Trump. But what's interesting is that let's stick on Iran because one of the news items that made a bit of a splash was that 
Trump uh, last week at this point had had asked for options to strike Iran because basically Iran now has more uranium uh, stockpiled because the U.S. left the Iran nuclear deal. And so Iran is a way both to pressure the U.S. to get back into compliance is, is getting out of compliance. And Iran is like, if you guys basically give us the money and lift the sanctions, we will also reduce our stockpile, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump was like, I don't like this. I want to strike them. Interestingly, it looks like one of the people who advised against it, and let's be clear, Trump did not do this. Um, he, he backed down, um, was Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, ardent Iran hawk, who wanted Trump to strike Iran after it downed a U.S. unmanned drone, told Trump, do not, do not attack Iran. And I find that interesting, um, just by his own trajectory. Um, but also, I think this is somewhat where we're at, is like, if Trump wanted to do it, first he's the commander-in-chief and he would get it, but also that there are people at the Pentagon who are like, yeah, they are also Iran hawks and believe that we should, uh, if not continue maximum pressure, a failed strategy, um, we should perhaps seek regime change in a way. And this would be one way to do it. Of course, perhaps one of the ways that they explained it to Trump to not attack is one you could start a greater war in the Middle East, which is like the one thing he's like very adamantly clear he does not want to do. Right. Yeah. It would be pretty ironic to get out of all the forever wars to start a brand new forever war. Yeah. I, I do. I do think that is curious, of course. And I, but I do think there's some recognition of like how much people can legitimately accomplish in, you know, a month and a half, basically. So I think that's part of it too. And of course, there's not really much left. As you mentioned, the maximum pressure campaign, um, which a big chunk of that is economic sanctions. There's not really much left to sanction um, when it comes to Iran anymore. But I think it speaks to sort of a broader question of, you know, how Trump on his way out is trying to reshape the culture of these places and potentially kind of solidify his mark on the federal bureaucracy and sort of change those norms a little bit. Now, of course, these are, they're not even Senate confirmed people, they're political appointees, they will be out the door when Trump is out the door. But um, you know, we talk in our first half about how there is sort of a culture at, of, at the Pentagon um, that is pretty, I don't know, static, I suppose. <laughs> There's a lot of inertia there. Um, but you wonder when you have shakeups like this, particularly at the top, how that does sort of leave its mark and what that means for sort of the long-term um, kind of culture at the Pentagon, which has been, I think, probably one of the most steady in the federal government. And, and to that, you know, also sort of agenda, I think there's been some talk that potentially some of those folks who Trump put in place might also be there to potentially declassify some intelligence or put out some information that right. might um, be favorable to Trump. We've seen Trump try to politicize intelligence before for his gain. And so I think that's something also to watch out of the Pentagon um, in the next few weeks. That's such a good point. And I, I find myself laughing at this irony. So Trump has spent his entire administration laughing about a deep state and yet, like, he's putting people in charge of the Pentagon that could potentially be a deep state in a Biden administration. Um, and and I, I hate that term, but, like, sort of the way he uses it is, like, secret people who are, like, working within the bureaucracy darkly to destroy my administration. Like, he could be doing that with some of these folks. So Miller would, would, would leave, you know, whenever Biden selects a new secretary of state and is confirmed, Miller would be gone. But, and here's where the, an, an esoteric bureaucratic thing comes into play. So Trump, is, has signed and eventually will execute an executive order that calls for what's called Schedule F. Um, and Schedule F, to be, to what is in the simplest terms, terms is basically um, would allow a political appointee to be cons have civilian employee protections. In effect, they really can't be fired. Um, I mean, that's not completely true, but like it'd be really hard to get rid of them. 
the people that Trump has put at the Pentagon and in most places elsewhere in the government are not Schedule F. So it is not yet an executed order. But that is the fear that maybe they could have their status changed in the, um, you know, despite the sclerotic HR system that exists in the U.S. government. And if that were to happen, then Biden comes in and he can't get rid of the Ezra Cohen Lonics and the Cash Patels of the world. Um, and so there will always be a contingent within the government that has these Trumpian um, tendencies that might be trying to thwart a lot of Biden's efforts. Now, that sounds all scary and, and, and odd, but it should be said that there are civilian employees all throughout the government with ver- varying um, political views, and their entire job, though, is still to serve the government, and regardless of whatever party is in charge. And so, and those are only very few folks who will have limited ability, even if they do get Schedule F protections. Um, so I don't think that's much of a concern, as I think some people are making it seem. But that said, like, that could be part of the plan here, is like, Trump in his mind could be like, let me just, you know, save my legacy in part by putting my people in government for an extended period of time, creating his own mini Trump deep state. Yeah, I mean, that definitely seems to be a concern. Um, I want to say ProPublica and WNYC, they have a program, uh, Trump Inc., I believe it's called. And uh, they did a great piece on this. If anyone wants to check it out, we'll put it in the show notes. But they, uh, you know, talked about this potential, what is called uh, basically like burrowing into (laughs) into the federal bureaucracy, which is basically converting these political appointees into civil servants. And because you can't fire civil servants for political views, it will be much harder once they receive those protections if they are acting politically. Um, I sort of agree with Alex that I think this may be a little bit overblown. What we've known from the Trump administration is sometimes they have these grand plans, but they're not always the best at executing them. So particularly a plan like this, I sort of think they might be their own worst enemy. But it is definitely troubling. And like you said, it is sort of given you know, Trump's sort of railing about the deep state, the fact that he's trying to create his own, the the fact that this is something that is being talked about and that this is something that the president um, and his allies might want to accomplish as as they're going out the door is, I think, just sort of broadly troubling and fits in with the larger kind of discussions we've had in the past few weeks about sort of democratic institutions and norms and sort of where American governance goes from here. Uh, To make a point that we made last week, you know, the, and, and I and I flubbed the the metaphor, but like the presidency is a relay race. Like you, you know, the new president can't choose the conditions in which, to this point, he um, comes into. And like Biden wouldn't want to deal with a war in Afghanistan. He wouldn't want to deal with uh, an Iran that hates us even more than it did before. He wouldn't want to deal with with Iraq, but he has to. Um, and he can only get those wars in the way that Trump leaves it for him. And the, the sort of greater point, I, I think, that this entire sort of episode um, is illuminating is that there's just really a lot that Trump could do to mess with Biden or to make his foreign policies harder within the next two months. And this is partially part, I mean, this is part of that, right? And it is incredible to me that when we think of like U.S. foreign policy or military strategy, whatever, in like, in in the grand scheme, it really comes down to four-year increments. It always seems to do. And like, or even in this case, a two-month increment. A lot can change. A lot of our, and a lot of it won't be our doing. Maybe some other country causes a crisis or, um, you know, attacks Americans or whatever it may be, in which case Trump would have to deal with it and Biden would have to deal with that too. But all things being equal at the moment, it's incredible to me how much like Biden's own thinking and plans would have to change based on whatever Trump wants to do within the next, you know, couple of days. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, we, so basically Biden has a lot of messes to clean up. We've talked about this, you know, we have the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and though we've gotten some 
really great news about potential vaccines. Um, that logistical, um, you know, delivery system still has to be set up, and that's going to be spearheaded by the federal government. Uh, we have the economic crisis, we have climate change, and so we have all these messes that we that Biden knew and was, is planning to clean up. But then, depending on what happens in the next, you know, month and a half, two months. We're going to potentially create a lot more foreign messes um, and problems that Biden is going to have to to do. And so I guess the fear was basically sort of creating this whack-a-mole with foreign policy, which, you know, Biden may have his agenda, but it's going to take a lot longer to get to that because he may be dealing with sort of escalating tensions in Iran, a spiraling security situation in Afghanistan, um, potentially, as you mentioned, Somalia, where there's potential for the U.S. to remove their counterterrorism forces there. And that region is particularly volatile right now because, you know, conflict is spiraling in Ethiopia. So basically, <laughs> the best laid plans are going to be, we're, we're always going to be kind of undermined by whatever kind of crises spring up in the world. And the question is, is the Trump administration trying to exacerbate that situation? Um, so the his successor has even more, <laughs> even more problems to deal with. And maybe to start our own drawdown here, um, it is interesting to me as I was reporting on on the, you know the news, the tension that a lot of people I spoke with who have been advocating for so long for the U.S. to get out of Afghanistan um, and Iraq, and just how like upset they were in the way we're doing it. I know we talked about it a bit in the first half, but it speaks to a larger conversation about responsibility and like what the U.S. owes in a sense. Like you know, Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State and Joint Chiefs Chair, used to talk about a lot of like if you break it, you buy it. Uh, in the sense, and it became the Powell Doctrine, in the sense that, like, if you go into Iraq, if you go into Afghanistan or whatever it may be, like, you own that conflict till the end. And there are people who are saying, like, yeah, we kind of do. Like, if even if I want out, we can't really leave until we make sure that it will be at least more fixed than it was, or at least not as broken, or however you want to look at it. And I was surprised at how many folks who have, again, I see them on Twitter, I talk to them constantly, who are just like, let's get out, it's time. It's, it, there, there's no reason to be in these places anymore. And just how upset they were at the way Trump's going about it. And, and, and again, I think it speaks to this, this larger conversation of the U.S. wants to end the wars, the forever wars, but they want to do it in a way that like, we, we do the best we can to our partners in Afghanistan, to our partners in Iraq, to the hundreds and thousands of civilians who will be affected by these decisions. And they're really upset at the way Trump has handled it. And so um, I, I find this tension fascinating, always between ending a war where we really see no benefit, but also um, trying to maintain a sense and a semblance of like American responsibility and and duty and also just like, um, you know, care for the people whose lives our actions affect. All right. Well, after that, I will uh, end this episode. Uh, Jen, thanks so much for hanging out with me yet again. Yeah, it was a good time. Glad to do it on International Men's Day. Really a perfect way to mark the occasion. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Again, I expect my gift later in the day. And thanks to all of you for hanging out with us uh, on what always tends to be an oddly uh, downbeat worldly. Um, but we're going to try to keep it more upbeat in the future. So uh, stick with us and please do rate, subscribe, and let us know at worldlyatbox.com what you think of this show. We will be off next week because it is Thanksgiving. Um, but please, if you're going to celebrate it, be safe, be socially distant, um, take care of each other and yourselves, and we will see you in two weeks. Until then, bye.